Welcome to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the only podcast you need for all the challenges and advancements in this rapidly evolving world of cancer treatment and medical oncology. Healthcare professionals and patients that are faced with rare cancers experience obstacles, including misdiagnosis, limited treatment options, or access to new and emerging therapies. The European Union estimates that over 5 million people are affected by rare cancers, similar to the number of people living in sunny Sydney. Before I introduce our special guest, as always, it's a pleasure to have you as my co-host, Michael. How have you been this week? I've been good, Josh. As our listeners will know, we've done a a series on one such rare cancer in neuroendocrine tumors, neuroendocrine carcinomas, but uh, there are so many other challenges that go beside the nuts and bolts of whether you give them sunitinib over everolimus. Exactly right. But today we have Meredith Cummins who joins us on the show, who is the CEO of Neuroendocrine Australia. For those unaware or the uninitiated, Neuroendocrine Australia is the only not-for-profit Australian charity trailblazing their way into the heart and minds of all those affected by this diverse set of cancers by providing specialist nursing services, advocacy, fundraising for research, and so much more. Meredith, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on this show and tell us all about your organization and its role in the oncological landscape. Thanks, Josh and Michael, for inviting me along. It's a great privilege to be here and the opportunity is, was just too good to, to miss. So um, I think just uh, to give you a little bit of information about um, how I got involved with Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia, I've been looking after neuroendocrine patients since um, the 90s uh, when it used to be called carcinoid disease. And uh, there's been a lot of issues as far as it being called carcinoid disease because so many health professionals think that it's not actually a cancer. And I think that all came about from the German professor that said carcinoid is cancer-like. And so it then sort of rolled on from there. So we try and really push away from it being called carcinoid cancer so that it's a neuroendocrine cancer and it is a real cancer and it needs to be acknowledged. So um, I became involved as I've been looking after so many neuroendocrine patients for a long time. I became involved with Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia in 2018 um, and I sort of had moved on from another position and I knew the both co-founders for Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia, Simone Layden and John Layden. And Simone said to me, you're not going to get away from me because she knew that I've been looking after patients for so long and being an oncology nurse of many years. Um, she made a position for me, which was part-time, and that soon became full-time as project officer and nurse educator. So um, from there, she's moved on to something else last October and asked if I would take over as the CEO. So that's how I became involved with Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia. And just a bit of background about Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia. It used to be called the Unicorn Foundation, um, which started in 2009. And it all happened because John, who's an anaesthetist at um, Royal North Shore, and Simone, um, their sister, had uh, a neuroendocrine cancer back before 2009. And they realised that there wasn't really anything available for patients, very little in the way of um, treatments and support. So they decided to set up the Unicorn Foundation. And the idea was that the, the horn of the unicorn was going to be a myth, you know, being a, a mystical creature that hopefully there's a cure in the horn. Um, and that's how that came about. 2020, we decided that whenever we were going somewhere, somebody 
would say, what's a Unicorn Foundation if we were there? And we said, well, we look after neuroendocrine cancer patients. What's neuroendocrine cancer? So that we decided we'd get rid of one of the what's it and, uh, and went for the Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia, which has been successful with people being able to find us a lot more easily. But I can talk a bit more about that a bit further down. Um, just as far as like my experience with oncology, um, I trained and everything in um, Sydney in um, the hospital. So I've got metropolitan, regional and public and private experience. So I've got a very broad overview of all the systems and how, how to work with it. So um, yeah, um, I have been working in the private sector prior to going into the not-for-profit for 15 years and was involved with setting up four cancer facilities, one in Wagga Wagga in 2002 at the Riverina Cancer Care Centre. And then when I moved back to Sydney in 2009, we um, relocated the Northern Cancer Institute out of North Shore Private and set it up in its own purpose-built facility. And then we built um, Bridges Forest, uh, Northern Cancer Institute, which is on the Northern Beaches. And then we set up um, Miranda um, Southside Cancer Care Centre. So I was the director of nursing for each of those facilities over those 15 years. Uh, so, yeah, seen a lot of diversity with um, treatment options, uh, a lot of changes as far as neuroendocrine cancer treatment options. And there's still so much more that can be happening. And we're really keen to sort of be part of that. That is, that dovetails quite nicely into the um, into Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia, the Unicorn Foundation, which you know is a fantastic name. Can I just say I I love that I love that name for a for a foundation. But you can you get uh, in a a bit into the uh, nitty gritty about what the foundation does, how it developed, what its objectives are, and and what it's sort of achieved up to this point. Yeah. So I mean the. Um... The mission really is, or the vision, is to be champions for earlier diagnosis. And we have five pillars, uh, which are support, advocacy, research, education, and awareness. Uh, so with the organisation, we're, we're very small. We all work from home, so we don't have to pay for an office. Um, all our funds that basically come in for our, our salaries and everything is all through patient donations. We don't have any government funding to uh, support that. So we're extremely grateful to our patients. But on that note, I can get on my soapbox and say it's wrong that patients have to actually be supporting their support. Um, it should be that there should be more funding available for all cancers, not just your, your mainstream cancers. So now I'll get down off my soapbox so that I don't sort of get too controversial. Um, but we do provide support and it's not just to patients, it's also to healthcare professionals. We provide education uh, for healthcare professionals and patients. Um, we provide resources. We work very closely with all the clinicians around Australia. There's five um, net specialist centres around Australia that we work closely with, two of them being uh, European Neuroendocrine Tumour Society accredited. Uh, there's only two actually sort of this side of the hemisphere um, outside of Europe. I think there's only one other that might be sort of, I think it's either America or whatever, um, but it's Peter McCallum and Royal North Shore. Uh, so, yes, they are centres of excellence and they've been fully accredited by ENETS. There's um, Fiona Stanley Hospital in Perth, Queen Elizabeth in Adelaide and Royal Brisbane Hospital in Brisbane. So we work very closely with all those clinicians to ensure that our patients 
have got all the information that they can have, that there's good referral pathways and that we can liaise uh, with all the healthcare professionals and just make it easier. So, so many of our patients, they come to us with our, um, we've got a telehealth net nurse line, which is Monday to Friday, but we have one nurse. And we want to make sure that our patients can come to us and feel comfortable to talk about things. And because nets are so unique and everybody's different, um, so many healthcare professionals just don't understand it. So if they've got a nurse that's on the other end of the line and all the staff that work with us, which is six, um, from marketing to um, graphics uh, web and project officer and education, um, to have somebody that really understands them is so comforting. So that's one of the main things is to make sure that we're there and we're meeting their needs. And if their needs need to be addressed, then we can help to advocate for it as well as getting them to advocate for themselves. Meredith, that's a that's a great overview. So thank you very much for that. I feel it's it's all we're all Michael and I are a bit like a broken record that <laughs> the rarer the cancer, there's always this massive need that is unmet from a logistical and support services, not only for patients, but also for clinicians mm-hmm. as a little anecdote and obviously we're not interviewing me here we're interviewing you but i, I had a, i could I had turn a, it around and I, interview you if you like and say what do you know about net <laughs> josh would love to be interviewed on his own podcast i have been very very boring but what is interesting is i had a clinician come to me today who'd been referred not an oncologist with a gentleman that had hot flushes or maybe it was a lady that had hot flushes and they'd done a chromogranin a that was sitting around 800 and you know, chromogranin A as a blood test, not specifically specific, but also a little concerning as a atypical presentation, which is some of those challenges. So the question I have is, what are the patient challenges and what are the clinician challenges and how, and I know you briefly mentioned it, but how do you kind of bring all that together to sort of create a streamlined process through your organization? Um, great challenge. Um, great question. So for the patients, I think one of what well, the biggest challenge is that so many of them have been having these vague symptoms for a long time, whether it's diarrhea, whether it's abdominal pain, flushing, wheezing, um, fatigue. You go to the GP, the GP sort of looks and thinks, okay, well, okay, you've got diarrhea, have some Imodium or do something else or maybe we need to look at your diet or whatever. These patients keep coming back and it doesn't get better with any of these treatments. And I think the thing is that we really want to get everybody to be aware of, and we're currently running um, a national awareness campaign to highlight those symptoms so that if you are experiencing, experiencing them, go to your GP and get them to look at you. And we're trying to And we've developed GP education modules, uh, which are fully accredited as well, um, for CPD, that we need people to think outside the square. Neuroendocrine cancers are not black and white. There's a very gray area. So if a patient's got a few of those symptoms, then we need to start looking at getting scans done and investigating. Chromogranin A, as you said, is not a great test, um, but we don't have a lot of good markers or anything like that for um, neuroendocrine cancer. And another problem with chromogranin A is it's not on um, Medicare. So the patients are out of pocket for that. So they might have to pay $80 each time 
and a lot of the patients are paying sort of four times a year. So $320 just for one blood test is a lot of money. But we really want patients to really push and advocate. I know in talking to GPs, um, when I, we've been doing education sessions, they've, a lot of them have said, I've never seen a neuroendocrine patient. And um, I've sort of said, well, I think you possibly have. But that patient possibly has got frustrated because they know there's something wrong with them, but nobody's actually picking up on it or they've had a Band-Aid. So they've gone on to somebody else. And we've got the stats that it's five to seven years before they get a, a correct diagnosis. I know in Europe it's up to 9.2 um, years. And it's a long time for patients to be having a problem that is just not addressed properly. And I know one of the um, problems that patients sometimes can have is like a, a racing heart palpitations um, and comes back when they've had all their cardiology done that there's nothing, nothing happening there. Or they get really anxious about, and anxiety is possibly more because it's a hormonally driven sort of cancer uh, with serotonin and everything, but they get anxious and then they're referred to have psychological assessment or psychiatric assessment because they think that there's something going on. So there's so many variables, but I think we need people to look outside the square and to think we've got a couple of these symptoms happening. Let's just see what we can do to see if we can pick up on a neuroendocrine cancer, whether it's having a CT, whether it's having an ultrasound done, doing further bloods and just, you know, or getting the patients to keep a diary, especially when they've got diarrhea, just to try and work out what's happening. So to summarise, <laughs> Meredith, Sorry. Um, no, no, because, because this actually segues into the next question, so it's perfect, is that the takeaway from that is that the pathway from symptoms and presentation to diagnosis is very, very suboptimal. I mean, f five to seven years from symptoms to, or from first medical contact to diagnosis, it sounds uh, almost uh, something that is unbelievable in this day and mm. age with all of our tests and, and what have you. Um, so there has to be ways that we can improve this sort of pathway you mentioned the uh, the gp education mm -hmm. uh and and but one thing that you said that sort of made me smile a little bit was a lot of gps say they've never seen a, a neuroendocrine patient i i've worked with oncologists and i i until really this year i have been one who has never seen a neuroendocrine patient mm. so so with all of this uncertainty and for want of a better word it sounds a bit pejorative but ignorance around neuroendocrine tumors what can we do as health professionals to optimise and utilise the, the pathway to get patients diagnosed and treated earlier than five to seven or if you're in Europe, nine yeah. years? Well, I think it's being aware of um, the vague symptoms that are available or that are presenting. Um, and just with those vague symptoms and the length of time to having diagnosis, 60% of the patients have got stage four disease by the time that they're actually diagnosed. So they've got spread to other organs, predominantly the liver. So there's no way that they're going to be cured. So these patients, and depending on what the grade is, especially if it's like a grade one, they're going to live with this disease for a long time. But it's a real roller coaster because the symptoms just sort of keep sort of stirring up every now and then. And, and they can change grade as well. Um, as far as an optimal care, there is an optimal care pathway, which was launched in January this year. 
Um, prior to me being the CEO, I was seconded to um, work with Cancer Council Victoria and Cancer Australia sort of funded that. And we worked with um, an expert working committee and we produced an optimal care pathway, which is available on the Cancer Council website. Uh, which is a 92-page document which goes through absolutely everything and it's very detailed. It goes into sort of all your um, sporadic neuroendocrine cancers but it also goes through the familial, the hereditary ones as well and how to screen and testing the rest of the family and all that sort of thing if it does happen to be hereditary. So getting people aware that there's an optimal care pathway that they can refer to For GPs, as part of the Optimal Care Pathway, there's a quick reference guide, which is four pages, which gives them timeframes and a guide to what sort of tests they should be doing to get that diagnosis. And within the suite of Optimal Care Pathway, there's a best care guide for consumers, which gives patients the opportunity to see what they should be having, the timeframes for getting results, who they should be referred to as well. So I think one of the major things is to have the Optimal Care for patients is to have the healthcare professional aware and aware of the referral pathways and also working in with the neuroendocrine cancer um, multidisciplinary teams that are working at those, especially those five main hospitals. The patients don't necessarily have to be referred to that hospital. The um, oncologist can actually present their cases at the multidisciplinary team and get advice on the management. So... There's a lot of options, but it's very much looking at all healthcare professionals in Australia to use the net specialist around Australia as um, a conduit, as a, a part of the team. Meredith, I must admit, I did not finish reading the National Action Plan, but I have looked through a number of the pages prior to our discussion today. And I think it's probably one of the few action plans, which is very nicely worded and has a lot of educational resources in it itself. So kudos to you and the team that did it because it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal document. And if anyone actually wants to go and have a look at this document, we'll link it at the bottom of our description for this episode. You touched on it briefly about the national action plan and you know, part of what you, part of what Michael said and what you've said is this optimal care pathway. But what are the other, you mentioned the five tenants early on in this episode, what are the other things that the National Action Plan wants to achieve in those next five years? What are the goals that you want to see? I mean, there's the obvious ones, early diagnosis, you know, better referrals, but, you know, there are specific objectives that you're looking at and what are they and how can we as clinicians help move this narrative forward? Um, As far as the National Action Plan, um, we've actually achieved the optimal care pathway, so that's sort of a tick. Um, And we have been given a one-off funding by um, Minister Butler's uh, team uh, for an awareness campaign and um, resources for patients and HCPs, but it's a one-off. It's not over five years. So that is fabulous that we've got that but it's just yeah we know that once we sort of get the awareness out there how are we going to maintain to progressing further so that it's going to be better outcomes for patients um with the national action plan we've also got on their targeted research um and i know this is one of my little soapbox moments um that we were told 
in writing and lobbying to um, um, politicians, local and federal, that um, well, particularly federal, that $73 million had been given to neuroendocrine cancer for research. Now, if we'd had $73 million over 10 years, we wouldn't be doing a lot of this and wanting to get support and, and the word out. So with investigating, uh, it actually ended up, and I'll short story long, um, or long story short, um, it ended up that there was only 8.5 million over 10 years given to neuroendocrine cancer for research. And the other 60 million was for neurological cancer. So one of the problems is that people don't understand the disease. And I think there's one thing with neuroendocrine cancer, and you sort of touched on it, that sort of, you know, people don't really know about it. It's not really a rare cancer. It's a less common cancer. But the main thing is that people just aren't aware of it. And the recent stats that came out from the Australian Institute in Health and Welfare, there's 5,556 new cases this year. And there's over 25,000 neuroendocrine patients living in Australia. So it's not a rare cancer. It's a less common cancer, but it's a cancer that's basically not known about. And that's one of our main objectives is to get people to, um, to know about it, uh, to be more aware of it, and for people to get checked out. If they've got symptoms, don't just let it go. It's not okay. If you're not feeling right, you need to get something done about it and you need to get an answer as to why these things are happening. That's really a sentiment that I think uh, anyone could take on board, anyone who's listening, really. If something's wrong, then get it checked out because you never know what's lurking under the surface. But, um, Meredith, one of the um, things that you've mentioned sort of multiple times is your attempts to to push back the fog, to uh, pull back the curtain on neuroendocrine uh, tumours and all of the various information and data on that. And so could you talk to us about the Planet Registry, mm-hmm. and the which I think is a fantastic um, initiative that uh, aims to, or from my understanding, um, aims to achieve what you were talking about with that sense of collaboration between um, specialists and getting access to a lot of this information, which as Josh and I have found in our previous episodes on this topic is is quite hard to find. You really do, do have to know where to look. And if you don't know where to look, you just go down rabbit holes and, and what have and you. And Dr. So, Google's not always good. No, no. And, and, <laughs> and because, yeah, as, as you know, better than better, certainly better than us and better than most, the, uh, the classification of neuroendocrine tumors in itself is complex yeah. and confusing if you're not aware of the, of the lingo as it exactly. were. So could you, could you tell us about the, the Planet Registry and, and, and how that yeah, works? Yeah, so the Planet Registry, we actually rolled it out in 2019 at those five hospitals around Australia. So um, the data dictionary that was um, written for that um, and the platform that's used is with um, Melbourne University eResearch Department. So they house everything there in a de-identified way. Uh, but each of the sites has their own unique um, identifier and the medical oncologists uh, recruit the patients to that. And everything that's in the data dictionary, which is the information that can then be put into the planet registry, is what is in their normal clinical um, assessment of a patient and all the, the information. So the idea for getting the planet registry up and running was so that we can look at what we've got as far as neuroendocrine cancer around Australia, look at all the the 
treatment options that are happening, um, you know, the, the gold standards of care, look at areas that could potentially be further um, researched um, so that we can get more clinical trials happening. Um, and with the patients who then have all that information, uh, there is an app that's um, attached to that for patients to put onto their phone. So the patients, once they're recruited, can then download it onto their Android or their um, iPhones. And it has um, quality of life, which has actually got 51 questions, which is EORTC 30 and then the GI Net 21, so that we can make it more specific rather than just the general quality of life. Uh, there's their um, ECOG status. There's a Bristol stool scale so that the patients can slide it along and they can put down what type of poo um, and how many times and when they do it. Um, and there's also um, vitals, which is their um, height, weight, and um, that then works out their BMI. And that all gets fed in. And I know there's clinicians at um, Peter Mac that use it in their consults, the patients. It all graphs it so that they can actually look at things and they can draw out certain aspects as to whether, you know, they've had diarrhoea, whether there's an impact on fatigue or other sort of um, areas of it as well. The problem with Planet Registry is COVID happened. Um, so there was not a lot of patients that were coming into the hospitals as far as recruitment and everything. We tried to do it all by doing an email consent and information um, that could be then sent to them so that when they saw the clinician that they could then get recruited in. Um, but another problem with clinical trials for everything and data management over COVID, lack of resources. So one of the hindrances to us really progressing plant registry is that there's been lack of resources at the hospitals. But we're hoping to reinvigorate um, that because we're doing a couple of other studies. One is called OSNET, which is with um, Flinders University and Neuroendocrine Cancer Australia is um, having a national nurse coordinator. And it's looking at getting the patients onto the OSNET study, which is nurse-led and it's shared care. So once a patient's case is discussed in the multidisciplinary disciplinary team, then the nurses then speak to their GP or a regional oncologist and link them in with the management plan so that everybody knows what's going on, the patient's been involved as well, and that we can look at sort of what the outcomes are as far as your normal standard of care or having this enhanced care by um, closing the loop on the, the management of it. So that's one of the ways. And there's also um, a genetic study, which we're hoping is going to start up soon uh, with Melbourne Uni and um, Peter Mack, and that'll be looking at biobanking, but also for the um, a bit more funding to go into Planet Registry, hopefully, um, so that we can get more information in there and it'll be a lot better as far as um, progressing the way that we can look after our patients. Yeah, it's, it's all that aim, isn't it, for access of information yeah. and resources and sharing of, I guess, decision-making and such, a which is, which is a complex as I said at the start, a complex group of cancers because not you know, every different neuroendocrine tumour and carcinoma is different. Yes. They're not treated the same. They have different outcomes. They have different prognoses as well. Yeah. I think one thing, I might just steal the stage because it's me. Um, <laughs> I will briefly, I'll briefly mention there are a number of trials running across Australia if people are looking for trials for their patients. Um, there is the Letitium 
etotriotide versus best standard of care in those with well-differentiated aggressive grade 2 or grade 3 GEP neuroendocrine tumors. It's called the Compose Study. We'll add a link uh, in our description as well. It's going to be a huge description, Michael. There is multiple other ones, but one of the other interesting ones is a PARP inhibitor with letitium dotatate, um, which is called PARLUNET. And finally, well, there's one that's uh, being spearheaded by your hospital. Uh, do you know which one it is? Is it the most study? <laughs> it is the most study. Yeah. Well done. Have you got anyone on the trial? Uh, we do, actually. Um, we've got uh, no, no one with neuroendocrine tumour at the moment, but we have had a couple of um, atypical carcinoids, which I know is completely different. But um, uh, we're always on the hunt for patients with uh, neuroendocrine tumours uh, because that is a it's a study of um, ipilimumab and nivolumab. Uh, and the best part of this study really is that it uh, it gives people access to immunotherapy, which is a heavily restricted and um, a highly selective, shall we say, treatment. Um, so a, a lot of people without who would never otherwise get access to immunotherapy are able to have a fairly tried and tested treatment rather than something that's fairly experimental. So it's running at a number of centres around the country. So uh, if you have anyone with a neuroendocrine tumour, and uh, they are either in the first or the second line, then uh, uh, find out where most is running and they'll be happy to take it. They most certainly will, Michael. Uh, ha, 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 ha. I, I had to. I had to. It's a dad joke, isn't it? <laughs> Meredith, you have been just wonderful. And look, we've got this list and I think you've essentially exhausted my questions. But I did, I did have a final, maybe a final big question for you is that, We've, we've gone through the challenges, you know, you've already achieved so much with essentially no funding and a dream, a desire and a, and a burning flame somewhere, somewhere in your mind say we need to do better. But what is your, your hope? What do you see the future vision of neuroendocrine tumors, not just in Australia, but I think globally, because this is not going to be a, an issue here. As you said, nine-year diagnosis for Europe, we're winning. Not that that's it's not good. a good race. Neither a neither a good good option. So very what, very low bar. To that's it. Low bar. It's like number two, number one out of two. But what what do you sort of see as the future vision of new endocrine tumors? And tell us what your big plans are. Yeah. Well, I mean, as far as like globally, I'm actually on the board of directors for International Neuroendocrine Cancer Alliance, uh, which is a whole group of patient um, organisations around the globe, and we've just had a summit over in um, Bologna, which was tough. Um, but, yeah, we, we dealt with it. Uh, but, no, it was amazing because we had two days where we just worked really hard to look at how we can better everything, basically, across the globe. Um, I think Australia is very lucky with what we have. Um, looking at some of the other countries, they just their options are, are not great. Um, but I think if we can all work together um, collaboratively internationally, uh, we can really achieve a lot. But I think the biggest biggest thing is um, is gaining better awareness through all healthcare professionals. And it would be fabulous to get it included in um, medical school and nursing school um, curriculums uh, when they're going through. Um, that would be, you know, just fabulous if it could be happening. Just, just to spark a thought because I know I have got a patient who's a GP, not old, but she um, said they didn't do anything um, 
about neuroendocrine cancer when she was going through. It was only the fact that she had a friend who was a surgeon that thought this is not right and really pushed her. Uh, but she said, yeah, they didn't do it when she did, went through med school. So, um, and I mean, it's really, we've got quite a few um, patients who have got neuroendocrine, uh, doctors who have got neuroendocrine cancer. And they said, it's just, yeah, it's most people don't know. And when they say they've got it, it's sort of like, don't know anything about it. So that would be one of the things. Earlier diagnosis has to be um, the next thing on the list. And I think that comes about through education, knowledge and awareness. Um, and I think just to, in Australia, please fund us, support us so that we can do things. I mean, we can't, we, well, we do and we will. Um, we will support these patients. Uh, we've, we've actually made a Living With Nets um, program that we uh, built with the Cancer Council Victoria uh, to take patients through education and how to advocate and just to give them a lot of information. But um, we need to have money. These patients are important. We need to be able to provide them with the best care and the same care that other cancers can get. So, yeah, education, earlier diagnosis and money so that we can look after these patients the way they should be. Yes, as the man said, money makes the world go round. Meredith, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we always love hearing perspectives that don't get so deep in the weeds as we are want to do on this podcast. Josh and I tend to be all about the numbers and the hazard ratios, but it's always very refreshing and eye-opening, um, particularly in this case, to speak to someone who looks at the bigger picture and looks at at the issue sort of on a on a national and, as you mentioned, international level. So thank you so much for coming on and giving your unique perspective to the subject of neuroendocrine tumours. We really appreciate My it. My pleasure and please, anybody out there listening, if you need to just get any information, um, please contact us because we're here to help you, whether you're a patient, healthcare professional, family member, just the community. Fantastic. We'll include, as Josh has mentioned, we'll include all of the relevant links in the description. So we'll uh, uh, optimise that particular pathway for you as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. For next, for next week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, it's two weeks and two interviews. Uh, this was this interview with Meredith was so special, we actually had to uh, delay our next one. But we have a old mentor of mine who is going to come on the show and speak to us about gynecological cancer. So it is an episode full of practical wisdom and knowledge, uh, a little bit narrower in scope to Meredith's very broad uh, uh, vantage point, but no less insightful. So we hope to see you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.